Welcome to Leave Your Mark, Scott Livingston here, and today I am uh, lucky to have Andy O'Brien, who is the Director of Performance and Sports Science for the Pittsburgh Penguins. He's been a leading-edge professional in sports performance for over 20 years. I have him on Leave Your Mark because he is an innovator, a leader, and a man who is comfortable sharing what he knows with no pretentiousness. That's a big word. I've admired his work and his character, and I am honored to have him here today. Welcome, Andy. Thank you, Scotty. Real privilege. I'm a fan of uh, the show you've put together, so this is cool for me, too. Thank you, my friend. Um, great to have you for a little bit of time. Um, I was reading uh, some of the stuff that you sent me, and you said you played five sports. That's pretty impressive. Um, what was your favorite one of the five that you played? I'd probably have to say track and field. Like I, It's really interesting. I think every decent athlete, uh, growing up in PEI back in those days, you kind of played every sport and it was a different time. It was, uh, the sport seasons were pretty short. I remember playing triple a midget, um, back in PEI, we had a 28 game schedule. That was what our schedule looked like. And you really didn't start until probably late October. So, uh, you know, it just, we followed the school season, you know, there was a fall sports, winter sports, you know, spring, summer. So you got a chance to play a lot of different sports. So by no means was what I was doing unique. That was just kind of the way you did it. But I loved track and field. I, I always just enjoyed the adrenaline. I think that suits my personality, you know, the adrenaline associated with, uh, I was a sprinter and jumper. So, uh, just the, uh, the adrenaline of being in the starting line and anticipating, uh, the gun going off. That was, that definitely suited me well. That's awesome. What was, uh, what was your most favorite, um, event in track? I probably have to say the hundred meters. I uh, liked, uh, I liked the hundred. Yeah. Probably, probably a little better at the, at some of the longer sprints, but, uh, but, um, yeah, I, I just really loved that idea of lining up in a starting line and, you know, that, that feeling that you had of adrenaline and the rush. And I just also love tracks. It was a training sport. Like I loved the training that went into, uh, an event. So, you know, knowing that you had X number of weeks or months to prepare for something and every day counted to kind of get you one step closer. I love that whole experience. That's awesome. What is it about PEI that creates bobsledders? I saw a Dave McEachern from there and you got Heather Moyes, a couple of medalists in the Olympics and bobsleigh. It's not a place one would think bobsledders would no. come from. No. <laughs> you would think with our medal success, you got bobsleigh tracks everywhere down there, right? But <laughs> Um, yeah, mountains, glorious mountains. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dave McEachern is a real important guy, I think, for our community and sport there. And when I was a younger guy growing up, um, you know, he was a fairly well-known Olympian. Uh, he went to three Olympics, won a gold medal, and, and would come back to PEI. And um, you know, obviously in PEI, you know, we don't have. Uh, if you read the news there, you'd be really. It's pretty fascinating in the sense that some of the things that make the news there probably wouldn't make the news elsewhere. So. <laughs> You get, you get an Olympian, you know, like, like Dave and, and there's obviously a lot of tension to it. So, um, but that was just a, a great experience having somebody like that. I think Dave's story, he was uh, really competitive in soccer. He was a good track and field athlete, but, um, ended up, uh, in Calgary at some point in time training for bobsleigh, made a team and, and ended up, uh, having a great bobsleigh career. So, um, I think just him coming back to PEI created the exposure to it. And I'm sure that was probably on Heather's radar at some point in time. And Heather was another multi-sport athlete, great track and field athlete, uh, really good rugby player. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think she might have even you know tried um, you know short track cycling and some different uh, you know sprint cycling events too. Just a really phenomenal overall uh, well-rounded athlete. And I think sometimes as an athlete, you know when when you uh, 
when you're just a really good athlete, athlete in general, like your ability to, to run and jump and create power. And, um, you know, you, you tend to gravitate to different sports that suit those genetic capabilities. And so I think Bob Chalet has that kind of theme to it. And anybody that's uh, ended up kind of passing through Calgary and, and getting a taste for it. Um, you know, if you're a good athlete, you could do really well at that sport. So it was pretty cool that, that we had Dave and, um, you know, he planted the seed and the awareness of the sport back East. And, and I'm sure that, uh, that was part of the reason why Heather ended up there as well. Was it a, a parental influence, a f- familial influence sport for you, or was it a community influence? Uh, in PEI? For, well, for you growing up, was it your parents that drove you into sport or the community, or it just was, you don't even really recall how it all kind of came together? Well, I think the greatest thing about my, like looking up at the way I, I grew up, uh, Scotty, is that sport, um, it was very different. Sport was about play back then, mm-hmm. you know? So, uh, so I can remember playing, you know, road hockey for hours and hours and, you know, parents having to yell at us to come inside and actually eat something, you know, we just really enjoyed it. And mm-hmm. I don't think there was a lot of exclusion at that point. Everybody participated, everybody enjoyed it. And it didn't really matter what it was, whether it was soccer, baseball, um, uh, road hockey, you know, more organized sports, whether it's at high school, everybody wanted to play, everybody wanted to participate. And it was really more about the fun. And so I think just growing up, I had the kind of personality I just gravitated to it and wanted to do it. So my parents never really had to encourage me or push me. It was more or less trying to just support me along the way with early rides places and, uh, you know, making the sacrifices and, you know, having to chip in financially for things like minor hockey. So they really supported me that way. But I think it was just the fun thing to do when I was growing up and I really enjoyed it. I'm going to circle around on this a, co- a little bit, but, um, you know, you've made a career out of training ath- athletes, very high, high performing athletes. But when you now look at the the athletes that come to you and you work with, do you look at the way they are sort of developing as a almost a negative uh, or a positive, I'm interested and curious in what your viewpoint is that now that it's changed a lot from when we grew up where it was about play and now it's really about almost early specialization and focus and skills and all these kinds of things. What do you think are the positive and negatives about that? Yeah, it's a great question. Such a talked about um, subject, I think, in, in sports now. I mean, in my throughout my career, I've I've worked with some older athletes um, and some athletes who are already professional that that are you know going back far enough. Like even a guy like Sydney had, he was a multi sport athlete, and um, I've worked with a handful of athletes that actually do have more of that non traditional background, and I think was part of their success. Uh, but then when I look at the minor hockey landscape uh, nowadays and I look at minor sport, there's, there's a lot more specialization. And and I think the biggest disadvantage of that, in my opinion, is the emotional um, aspect of it and the development and the purpose of it. So there's a lot of messaging around, you know, the reason why you play this sport is so that you could be successful or the reason that you play the sport is so that you can, um, you know, make a lot of money or that you can, you know, gain some kind of state status. And, and that's uh, sad to me when I see that kind of a landscape, because I think you see some athletes drop out of sport the moment that they feel as though they don't have an opportunity to, to be really successful in it. And I just see sport as, as no matter who you are, uh, even many professional athletes very often have to look back and, and connect with that side of them that just loves the sport and loves the camaraderie and loves the competition. And so that to me is, is the biggest part. Um, as far as the specialization and the challenges um, around training and some of the decisions that, that go with that, 
Um, I, I will say briefly that I think there's two, um, two types of bias that come into that, Scotty. One type is, I think on the, you know, the sports side, uh, people feel that more is better. So they feel that, you know, if I just clock more hours, if I, if I keep going, if I want it, if I will my way through it, then I'm going to succeed. And we know sport development is, doesn't really work that way. There's a lot of different elements. And most of the time when you approach it that way, you start to ignore other elements, you know, some of the technical and strategic side of things get overlooked uh, and you start to, you know, maybe focus on one element too much and, and you ignore maybe a psychological part or maybe a, uh, a physical development part. I also think there's a bias on the other side. I've, I've heard uh, the arguments from strength and conditioning community that um, in minor hockey, for example, the best thing to do is just get off the ice and, and get really good at strength and conditioning. And I think sometimes that argument, you know, comes without a whole lot of thought to it too. I, I think there is a little bit of a bias. I, I do think that there's benefits to developing your skill and benefits to on ice periodization plans as well. And I think that, you know, if you look at the science from a guy like Tim Gabbett, for example, um, that looks at workload and trying to create, you know, equal amounts of workload and avoiding acute spikes of workload, it wouldn't might make a lot of sense to just stop playing hockey as the best way to get good at hockey. And then all of a sudden start playing a lot. Um, I think it's better to have some exposure to being on the ice year round, but maybe you're tapering it down in some capacity, or maybe you're not working on intensity from an on ice standpoint. Maybe it's a little more technical. Um, so, so I do, I, I do think somewhere in, you know, in between those two extreme biases, there's a better argument that talks about how, you know, some of the developmental aspects of, um, of becoming a, a young athlete and, and the technical and uh, tactical aspects can flow together. Well, that's awesome. Um, I noticed, uh, that you had referenced the Rocky movie as an influencing <laughs> factor for your, uh, interest in the training. What was it about? Was it about his, you know, the, the energy that he put into it, the, the, the story around it, what, what perked your, uh, your excitement or the, the sense of, of connection with that? Yeah, it was something that just, I, I mean, I, I got to think I've watched that movie a thousand times, you know, probably started when I was about seven years old. And, you know, it's just one of those movies where I think as a young kid, my jaw just hit the floor watching it and got so expired, inspired. And probably right after the movie, I was in doing some kind of workout somewhere, you know, trying to imagine I was one of those two fighters. But, but yeah, I really saw from both sides. I mean, I think this idea that you get a guy like Rocky that has this insurmountable task. Uh, that no one really thinks he can do it, but he himself believes he can do it. And he takes that belief um, and just applies it every day. And just the whole idea of sort of isolating himself in the mountains to get ready and lose himself in the pursuit of this thing that, that nobody else thinks he can do. Like I see so many parallels with young athletes nowadays that have a dream of playing in the national hockey league or becoming a college athlete or becoming, you know, they have a dream and, and just to be able to connect with that dream and take that energy and inspiration and apply it into your day-to-day -day environment, I think is such a cool thing and such a big reason why I'm a part of this industry. Um, and then the other side of it was, um, was the Russian side of it. And I, I thought it was really cool that you had this team of people that were using science to give themselves a competitive advantage. And so that whole idea of studying the body, studying the sport and, and really trying to develop that kind of expertise, I thought was really cool too. And almost as a way of, you know, outthinking your opponent or developing some, some strategy, you know, that, that is going to ultimately give you that competitive advantage. I love that concept too. Um, and, and so I think both of those things really, really drove me and it, uh, it's definitely was, uh, you know, one of the first, things that probably got me excited about, you know, training for competition more so than just the competition itself. Um, 
I've really enjoyed the moments that we have bounced into each other. Um, not because I think you and I think alike. I think we have some interesting differences in the way that we think, but I think that you're very, uh, thoughtful and uh interested and curious about your industry and i'm i'm curious how that developed in you from as you went into college and things that you kept sort of an an open-minded sort of viewpoint about training because you know as you know our industry can be very biased or very sort of you know you do it this way and so what what is it about you that that cultivates that or creates that curious that's a great question I, i think i think the biggest thing for me is um you know, when I was learning as a young strength and conditioning coach, Scotty, you're really just coming up with exercises and drills and concepts. You might read about a way to plan something and then you're just trying it. So there's a lot of trial and error, I think, initially. And, um, you know, I think I, I got to the point, um, I've always really tried to care about the athletes that I work with. Um, you know, I want to see them have success, and especially ones where you see that they're just putting all of their, their emotion and, uh, you know, everything that they have making all these sacrifices into their goals. I really just want to see them be successful. And to be honest, there were times early in my career where maybe somebody didn't achieve the success I thought they were going to want to achieve. And I think in that moment, you have a choice as a strength conditioning coach to be honest with yourself and and ask yourself, what can you learn or to just kind of discard it and, you know, try to continue to promote your own ideas. And and I think for me that that really happened when I went to work with the Florida Panthers. Um, I, I was into, the off-ice side of it and testing and trying to look at relationships between off-ice and on-ice performance. And there were a lot of things that I think um, I assumed would relate um, because if it, if it was an off-ice task that related to speed and power, I would just assume that, you know, making an athlete better at that would automatically make them faster and more powerful on the ice. Uh, Or, you know, Hey, if I'm just doing a 20 meter sprint test, that's got to be the same as, you know, we're developing physical qualities that are associated with, you know, uh, 20 meter speed on the ice. And, and when I tried to correlate the two things, they didn't really line up uh, the way that I thought they should. And, and we had a team there where we had some athletes that maybe didn't look the best off the ice, but looked very good on the ice and vice versa. And, mm-hmm. you know, my, my whole thought process is, you know, was to be curious about that and, and to try and better understand it. And I think it's easy to give excuses to that. We can always say, well, it's related to skill or, you know, there's something they're overcoming. But the way I looked at it is that, you know, hockey is physical. I mean, really what we're trying to do, there is a, a, a cognitive aspect where you have to anticipate the play and think, and it's tough to separate that at times, but essentially we still have to skate away from pressure and you still have to move. And, uh, you know, you still have to make plays which are physical. And so, um, so I really, you know, looked at players that I thought looked like good athletes on the ice, but not so much off the ice. And, and so I was just really curious about which things did correlate and maybe if I was looking at 10 or 11 different off-ice tasks maybe two or three of them correlated and the others didn't and so I really kind of just focused on those two or three and said you know where what is that relationship like why do those correlate and um, just kind of drove me into a a phase of my career where I just had a lot of questions and not a lot of answers and it led me to go and meet people and throw ideas up on a whiteboard and just this pursuit of understanding is I think something that, um, that really drove me to get more, to get better. And, um, at the end of the day, that that's, I think probably the thing that still drives me, Scotty is, is that the more I know, uh, the more I realize I, I still need to know more. And, and, uh, I think it can be very humbling sometimes to go through that experience because you realize there's, there's just a lot that you haven't figured out yet. So, so that always just drove me to try and learn more. Yeah, I've come to a recent uh, understanding that we don't know anything. We just understand things a certain way. And that's, that's pretty much it. You know, you have your understanding based on your perspective. And that's the way it works. Um, Were were there any sort of standout um, 
influ- influencers in that process of your sort of really tasking yourself to, to look at what you were doing and, and your growth as a professional? Yeah, I think so. I think unlike um, some people that may have had an opportunity to truly mentor under someone, you know, they had one kind of predominant influence. I've, I've had a lot of different influences, even some people that have just read their work and looked at the way they think, or maybe been inspired by something that they do. But I've, I've really had many um, in terms of, in terms of my style or the type of work that I do. Um, I've, I've always been like really impressed with Dan Paff and, and had an opportunity to meet Dan um, and met a lot of people that have worked with him over the years, but really just like, um, you know, how broadly he thinks, um, how pragmatic his approach is um, and how logical it is. And so usually the approaches that are really logical, um, those are the ones that I really like. Um, I, 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 I used to be a really big fan of, of Mel Sif. And Mel's a name that maybe not a lot of people today uh, know because he's uh, he's passed away. But he was really involved in the development of uh, some of the PNF work and, and some basic techniques. But um, he was always somebody that had a lot of um, critical thinking. So you know he really liked to challenge the status quo, and he liked to challenge people to devise a, a logical and scientific explanation for their work as opposed to just accepting something because it's a principle or because it was something that got passed down. And I really enjoyed just those puzzles um, that, that he would put out there. This is a very early internet days. He had um, a, a, an internet board called Puzzles and Paradoxes, which basically would always challenge uh, you know, a, a certain concept. And, and there were a lot of really neat people that would contribute to that. I remember Steve McMillan contributing to that, Paul Check. And you'd see these people who are fairly prominent getting into deep arguments, you know, about a certain exercise or, you know, the way something works. And one thing that was really interesting, I remember, uh, you know, him writing something talking about lower abdominal musculature versus versus um, upper abdominal musculature. And, and he sort of had this theory that the rectus abdominis contracts as a whole. So you really can't have a lower abdominal exercise, you know, and. And Paul Jack was really arguing that, you know, he felt that, you know, no, listen, you know, I do it all the time. Trust me, it's there. And, you know, the, the concept of the board is like, okay, well, if it's there, explain it, you know, what do you, what do you mean by this? And so I, I think just basic rules and principles of physiology um, are extremely important. And then it's extremely important that when you're going to build upon those or add something innovative, that you're respectful of those and, and that you also try to add some kind of rationalization for your thought process. I'm going to segue a little bit because one of my um, one of my little shticks of my uh, podcast is that I get everybody's birth date, and I ran into a book numerous years ago after my second divorce that was called "The Day You Were Born," and it's uh, basically uh, an interesting combination of astrology and numerology. And the reason I'm kind of aligned with it is because it, I found my purpose in it, and it connected with a. personal statement that I had been connected to for a long time. So anyways, I'm going to read you yours. And and it's interesting after what you wrote to me. So I'm going to, this is, this is what you wrote to me, um, which I want you to hear for a second. I've learned a lot that clarity of thought and maintaining a balanced perspective is really important. I've always been the type to put my career first and overwork myself. I find it hard to say no to opportunities that serve, that served me well in some ways, but I've learned that I serve others best when I take care of my own body and mind. So a Sagittarius 8's purpose is to transcend your destiny through acceptance, to balance joy and despair, success and defeat, using all the sources of strength. The saying that goes with yours is nothing would be 
good, worth doing at all if a man waited until he could do it so well that no one could find fault with it, Cardinal Newman. And then it goes into the Sagittarius 8 is a perfectionist. They scrutinize everything in their path. They demand trust and loyalty from others because they give them back. Hard workers, they take on unnecessary responsibility in an effort to make everyone's life better. It's the process that's important now, not the end result, the journey, not the goal. But unless they set boundaries, they overload. The overload can bring them close to a nervous breakdown. Wow. <laughs> that's like giving me uh, chills just listening to that. That's crazy. That's it is a crazy book. That's why I've started doing this about pretty much everybody that I've done this with. That's the same that's cool. reaction. That's, that's, that's now on the top of my uh, books to get list. <laughs> and then I just, uh, I, I, I wanted to read you something else you read to me was the volume of work is less important to me than the quality of work. And I've been trying lately to do a better job of laying a foundation and structure to ensure the quality of work is kept to a priority. Mr. Perfectionist. I def- definitely love asking the big questions about life. I'm very curious by nature and I love anything related to personal growth, health, and overall well-being. So you are true to your purpose, sir, which is awesome. That's awesome. Um, That's great. Yeah, I'll send you a, a link to that for, for I always do for everybody. Um, Amazing. You've worked with some extraordinary athletes and uh, those listening might not know, but uh, you were one of the guys who you got very involved in Sidney Crosby, who for those who maybe don't know the National Hockey League is probably one of the best, maybe top five players of all time. And Sid's had a pretty, pretty interesting career. But You've worked with a lot of other really high level athletes over your career. What have you learned from those guys over time that uh, taught you more about yourself? Yeah, it's, a, it's such a great question. I mean, I, I've uh, one of the th- things I'm most grateful for is having had the opportunity to connect with and and get to know um, really unique people. And I think that uh, sometimes it's just being a fly in the wall and being able to observe them and just see how they go about doing things. And um, the one thing I've I've done probably don't do a great job is is when I learn something from those athletes. Um, I'm probably really good at, at applying it to other athletes that I work with. Um, maybe, maybe not so much as applying it to myself, but we need to get better at that. But, uh, you know, I think the, I think one of the big things is that uh, I'm a big believer that there's a certain sweet spot of arousal, uh, through which you can achieve, uh, your greatest abilities physiologically and cognitively. And there's a such thing as too much arousal where you probably lose access to some fine motor skills and access to some elements of cognition, depending on the type of sport you're playing. And then there's obviously not enough arousal and everybody has their own sweet spot, but inevitably in our culture here in North America, we put a a premium on intensity. Mm. And the more we put a premium on intensity, the more we're probably uh, removing an athlete's capacity to tap into their greatest motor learning state. And, you know, that, that's something that's really interesting for me is that at the top athletes that I've worked with are just incredible motor learning capabilities and motor learning skills. And they've got an ability to create this element of arousal where they can achieve speed and power, but also learn in that state as well. And what separates them maybe from other athletes that, that don't do that is that they, um, you know, some of the athletes that maybe don't learn or adapt as quickly, they have, uh, this other approach where they, um, you know, they just try to let intensity over, overcome, you know, all, all obstacles. And so, um, so I really believe that, 
you know, a lot of times when you have an athlete that approaches that way, it's trying to get them to relax and trying to get them to become more efficient so that things are a little bit, um, a little bit less effortful. And then, you know, sometimes you might find athletes that are very smooth and have great motor skills, but they need more intensity. You know, they need more intensity to get up to that, that spot where their sweet spot is. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in looking at athletes as individuals and trying to, you know, identify how to get into that sweet spot. And for some people, this is what meditation and mindfulness practices really helps them do, helps them create a certain level of, of uh, awareness um, and there is some learning that can be that can take place whether it's breathing to reduce anxiety and put them in a state where they can learn about themselves or sometimes it's it's mindfulness practice where they you know can can actually tune into their body um, so so yeah I, I'm a big believer in that as as an athlete as well and have definitely seen that in in uh, some of the elite performers I've been around how do you um, personally negotiate um counsel, uh, observe the concept of, uh, I mean, this is an interesting debate at times, but in order for somebody to really be the best at what they do, some would feel uh, that, you know, you have to be sort of all, all in only directed to that. And, and there will be things that, that go to the wayside in terms of relationships, life, etc. Do you, do you share that viewpoint? And if you don't, uh, how do you balance for yourself? And when you counsel you, some of your athletes about being, call it, maybe more well-rounded or connecting to other things? Um, or do you feel that that is a, a, a realistic um, reality of being the best at what you do? That's such a, such a great question. That's right at the heart of sport and our society in particular. Uh, you know, there's no question about it that one of the common denominators that you'll see of ultra successful people in sport, in business, in any kind of endeavor you know, their life tends to revolve around that task. You know, I've, I've known some really successful musicians who've said the same thing. It's just ultra sacrifices, ultra commitment, you know, ultra level of focus uh, and endurance and applying yourself day in and day out. And yeah, there's a certain level of productivity that goes with that. I, I look at it as short-term and long-term success, Scotty. So I think that there's a point in time in which you may need to apply yourself with that level of intensity and, and that, you know, really lose yourself in what you're doing. But, you know, you also have to create some kind of long-term plan that gives you balance for that. So, you know, I've seen some ultra, you know, high-end performers that have a tendency to, to, you know, lose themselves in their craft with this crazy amount of intensity and do incredibly productive things. And they just seem to outlast other people. Other people just fatigue. You know, they can't stay on and they can't maintain that. And Sydney is a great example of that. You see them in the playoffs. It's playoffs in the NHL is a grind. You know, it's two months long. And uh, some people just can't stay at that, you know, 110% intensity emotionally and mentally. But he's like that every day. You know, he practices mm -hmm. like that. He trains like that all day, all year round. And so it's just easy for him to sustain it. Um, and he's just so highly motivated uh, to stay in that zone. But I think if you if you take athletes that engage themselves like that, you know, then you have to step back and ask the question, okay, well, what is the cost of this? You know, what what are the areas of my life and as a human being that that are being sacrificed to achieve this? And then how do I add that back in? And so what are the times in which I need to really withdraw from this and, and center myself and rebalance? Um, you know, how can I make time for other things? And for some people, this is met by some kind of specific practice that they have. For some people, they have 
either mind coaches, sports psychologists, or psychiatrists that help them with these things. Uh, for some people, it's family. So, you know, they have, uh, they stay grounded by, you know, time with family and friends where they can, you know, not be this incredible athlete. They can just be a person and be themselves. So everybody has their own way of doing it. But I think it all starts with the point of saying that it's unhealthy to do that. And it may lead to certain levels of productivity and success, but the long-term success is going to be by, you know, having some activities or, or some kind of formal practice that allows you to stay balanced. Um, so you don't burn yourself out. Mm. I'm curious when, um, you know, you've had the experience, uh, I was talking to Pete twist the other day and Peter and I spent 11 years in the league did not win a Stanley cup. And I know lots of guys who haven't, and you've been, privilege to be able to be a part of that. So I'm curious how you gauge your personal success within the framework of an organization when a, the organization's primary modus operandus is to win, but win a Stanley cup or a championship, but only one team does. And so when you win it, how do you, how do you define your personal success within that? And when you don't, how do you define your personal success within that? Yeah. I mean, I like, it's a really neat thing to have been a part of that for me. Um, the greatest, you know, it's funny. I had somebody like it was one of the hometown, uh, newspapers that asked me this question. They said, you know, how does it feel to win the Stanley cup? And I, I don't actually look at that as, you know, me winning it. You know, I wasn't an athlete that really participated in that so much, but I'm so grateful to have been able to witness what happened and obviously played a role. I think every member of the staff plays a role and it's by no means, it's not to diminish that. Um, but to me, it's, it's more of an experience I'm grateful for than it is an accomplishment to be really honest. I think that, um, you know, to work with people day in and day out and to have these relationships and to care about them and then see them successful uh, that's, that's a great reward. And there's, there's no better feeling than watching the guys on the bench as the time ticks down, you know, um, or to see them lift the cup over their head. Or, I mean, we had like so many like small stories, like Mark Strait, for example, was one of the guys that was a, basically a healthy scratch for our team. He played a couple of games, but, um, you know, still got to put his gear on and go out at the end of, uh, at the end of the game in Nashville there and lift the Stanley cup. So for me, it's just seeing guys like that, that have, paid their dues and put their time in and just see it kind of come to fruition for them. So the greatest reward for me, um, probably first and foremost was just seeing the athletes who are sacrificing their bodies and, and really, um, you know, taking the, the culmination of all of their work through their career to get to that point and finally realize their dream and achieve it is the coolest, coolest thing. Mm-hmm. Um, a guy like Phil Kessel, who, who has gone through a lot, you know, taking a lot of scrutiny, um, to have that moment of glory and see those guys that you care about and are supporting every day, achieve it. That, that was the first thing. The second thing that I'm most grateful for with that experience is, um, the, the way the national hockey league does things is just so incredible how they keep, make the staff feel a part of that experience. And so, you know, they, you know, the ability to share in the cup, you know, every member of the, of the training staff gets to have it for a day, you bring it to your hometown and so for me, that was really cool to share it with my family. Um, you know, did some things with some charities there, brought it to a local hospital, brought it to the gym where I, you know, kind of got my start in PEI. We did some things with special Olympics athletes. And, um, probably my favorite thing was I brought it to a senior's home and it was a surprise visit and seeing some of those people interact with it. 
uh, they're a different, you know, it was a different era. They didn't really care about the Instagram photo as much. Um, they just really wanted to ask questions like, Oh, tell me about your story. You know, why is this here? And they would look at some of the names and some of them would remember the games and remember where they were. And it was just a neat experience for them to touch it, see it, interact with it. And it was a cool part of their day. So, so all of the richness that comes with the natural national hockey league, the history, the people, you know, that's what that's about, um, mm-hmm. is that great experience. And, and I don't think, you know, I, I like, I feel so grateful to have been a part of the Pen- Penguins organization because we have so many great players, great coaching staff, an organization that gives us a chance to be successful. Um, but there are so many great people who've never won a Stanley cup, but are still getting those other experiences. You know, mm-hmm. the, the history of the game, they're part of so many, great things and the richness of the game is still there for those people. And so I I think, you know, the cup isn't about winning as much as it is, you know, connecting you to the history of the game and connecting you to all these great experiences. And there, there's a lot of glory in the teams that maybe went to the finals and won a, you know, won a, a, a conference championship or divisional championship and all the, you know, the Memorial cups and all the different things and parts of hockey. And I don't necessarily see winning a cup as necessarily the definition of success as much as it is the greatest possible reflection of the game itself and what it's all about. I really like your answer to that because, um, you know, for myself as well, I mean, I lean towards that same viewpoint that when you're in an organization like that, you're, you're not really, um, winning and losing, so to speak, you are contributing to, uh, the growth and development of a group of people who are trying to achieve something. And so my, reflection point was always on how am I contributing to their growth and development as, as human beings and as athletes, you know? And so I think when you look at it that way, it it takes on a wholly different uh, feeling and sense. Um, And to that end, I'm wondering um, when you look at, um, you know, you, I I liked what you had written to me about the concept of your connection with process versus the end goal or the goal point. And I think to some degree, that's something that sociologically we've, gotten a little disconnected with we've gotten very connected on goals you know getting the the medal or the car or the job or what have you and it seems to be very uh empty void for a lot of people over time and they just keep sort of trying to you know fill it with the next goal and uh, and so how do you counsel coach um support the growth and development of your athletes or those that you work with in their understanding the the concept of process and the process of getting somewhere and owning that process and having having a greater connection to that versus the actual goal itself well i think uh, you know if you start like to me it's it's uh, i almost look at it as you can rationalize it in in one of two ways one way is is looking at you know the process versus the destination as a function of achieving overall balance and, and success first and foremost, as a person, you know, not as an athlete. Um, you know, that's, that's the one way of approaching it. The other way of approaching it, and I've used this a lot, Scotty is, you know, sometimes the hook for someone is that they want to be successful. They have something that they want to achieve. And, you know, I've really noticed that the, the best athletes, the athletes that I've been around that are the most successful, they have, they have the ability to kind of own or, manage this process with with a high amount of quality and and a certain amount of commitment every day and they just don't they're not inconsistent with it so they don't fatigue you know they don't show up unprepared they don't have you know these off days like they're always just finding a way to maintain the top quality of their work on a day-to-day basis and their preparation and their mindset and so 
you know, if you look at it from that perspective, the only way you can fully achieve that is if you love what you're doing. It's the only way, you know, it's really, really hard to sustain that kind of focus in anything if you don't love it. And so you really have to find a way to maintain that. And, and so if you love, you know, the sport, if you, if you connect with the true essence of what we're trying to do here sport wise, um, then the day-to-day work is enjoyable to some degree. Um, you know, and it's all worth it. If you look at, at, you know, the sport as from a kind of a myopic viewpoint as, you know, I'm, this is about winning or this is about a destination, then that process becomes really hard. And even if you're a dedicated person, uh, some people just, you know, it's human nature that, you know, when something isn't enjoyable, it's really difficult to sustain it for long hours, you know, day in and day out. And so I think this is, you know, the success is a function of sustaining high quality work on a consistent basis. And in order to do that, um, there has to be some level of, of love for the sport and some level of appreciation and gratitude for the opportunities you have. Hmm. We're doing this on mother's day. Do you have any uh, interesting reflection points on uh, mom on a day like today? <laughs> That's very fitting. That's very fitting. I, my mom is uh, is a great, great woman. Um, and uh, I, I probably tell more mom stories you know, she's famous because everybody I work with, I've always got a couple of good mom stories for them. But, um, yeah, I, my mom is, uh, just kind of the ultimate, uh, carer, you know, of our family. We have four kids and, um, you know, she's, she's not the kind of person that takes a lot of enjoyment and doing things for herself, but loves to do things for other people. And there's never a, a moment where there's any shortage of enthusiasm or desire to help someone or do something for someone. And so, um, you know, I think our family has really been driven off of that. We've all had our own pursuits, whether it was our own athletic careers when we were younger or different things we're involved in hobbies. And it's taken an incredible amount of energy for her to manage four kids doing all kinds of different things and, uh, organizing and controlling, supporting, helping people through the ups and downs and, so I, I think that it's really interesting. My dad is a, a chartered accountant and a, a guy is known, known as a real good problem solver. And, uh, you know, I, I always felt like it took a little bit of, of, you know, my both parents, you know, my, my, the analytical side of things for my dad. But I think just in, in our career, it's so important to care for people and make them feel cared about and supported. And, and uh, I think my mom's really taught me a lot in that regard. So um, I had a, a sports That's a good mom student. story that uh, on Mother's Day that you have to tell me the, the, the <laughs> learning one for you. One of the mom stories. Well, my mom is known for, uh, you know, maybe overreacting emotionally with things. Sometimes we give her, uh, you know, a Christmas gift and, you know, her reaction is always like, Oh, it's just the most amazing gift ever. <laughs> She's always, always a little bit of a an over elaborate reaction to things. And so, yeah, there's, there's probably a bunch of stories that tie into that one, but we always, uh, we always get a few chuckles around Christmas time. That's good. Makes, makes Christmas special, right? Yeah. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> You were one of four kids. Uh, how did your uh, siblings play a role in your uh, growth and development? They beat you up yeah. all the time? They, uh, <laughs> I was the youngest uh, of four. So I had a, an older brother who was about eight, eight years older than me and then uh, a couple of sisters in between. And yeah, I think we were all just going, you know, looking back at it, I don't, I think it's all seemed normal, but we all grew up in a really small house. And, but back then we just didn't know any better. And I think we, uh, we were all just doing a lot. We all had a lot going on and, and we're always really interested in participating in things. And we were a very busy, active family. So, um, yeah, I think just, you know, I always looked up to my brother, you know, and I always tried to follow him and, 
Um, he was really into training and working out. He was a college football player. So played at St. Francis Xavier university and played junior A hockey. So he was a real driven, uh, athlete and, and student. And so he set a great example for me. And I think my sister's, um, you know, we're both really good athletes too. So, you know, it was great to be able to grow up in a family where I could look up to them and see how they do things and, and interact with them. And, uh, yeah, yeah, we were very, very close as a family. We're lucky that we're all spread out, but, uh, we've always uh, remained really tight to this day. That's awesome. Um, I mentioned before that you had trained Sid and I'm just wondering what's the, the character trait in him you admire the most? Um, I would say the character trait I, I admire in him the most um, definitely relates to his personality. Um, he's just extremely humble. Um, and he is, he's the person who could probably like, you know, wield their authority sword the ease most easily, you know, because he's this guy that has a tremendous amount of influence and, and a tremendous amount of ability to, to ask for different things, but has always prided himself in not being that guy. You know, he's not the flashiest. He, you know, he never, he's just really, um, I think a very humble person and he's always stayed true to, uh, his, his roots. Um, he's extremely gracious with his community, always gives back. And he's just honestly never changed. You know, I've just never seen an ounce of change in his personality. Um, that's different from the the 13 year old kid that I met and began working with at that time. I can honestly say he's just the exact same person. And I think that's a great quality to have. And so difficult. I mean, you just, it's so difficult to accomplish that. So a lot of credit to his parents and his family and he, he himself, uh, for, you know, being able to just remain this humble person that, that hasn't changed one bit in spite of all his success. Mm. I know you've worked with, um, a lot of guys in your business and, you know, you have, a an influence on some young professionals as they're growing up now and stuff. Um, do you, you enjoy that role as a mentor and, and how do you take that on? What is, what do you, what is your sense of responsibility to that? Yeah, that's probably my favorite thing at this point in my career, Scotty, is is teaching uh, things that I learned and love learning and are passionate about and, you know, things that maybe it took me 10, 12 years to discover in and of myself and now have the privilege to be able to share that with other people. And I get excited about sharing it because uh, I think they're cool discoveries that I've made. So to be able to take some part of my own experience or journey and pass that on to someone else and hopefully see them utilize it and take it and add to it and make it better and, and let the, the energy and the long hours kind of live on through other people. I think that's awesome. Um, and then I think just connecting with other people that are passionate, I, I definitely recognize and relate to the passion that they have. And so it's so great to support them. And there's been, I, I think there are five or six uh, different employees in the NHL now that came through some kind of mentorship or some type of working relationship with me. So there's a little crew of people, you know, that I have that are just friends now, which is, which is a really neat, uh, really neat experience. But, but I think the thing I've realized too, is it's been very humbling going through that experience for me. I've realized that mentorship isn't easy. Uh, it can be really, really challenging at times. And, uh, you know, it, it can be really challenging, I think, to have the patience to meet someone where they're at and allow their experience to be their experience, not yours. Uh, it's a difficult thing to do and something I've had to really practice and, and try to continue to get better at over time. And I'm still uh, trying to get better at that. Um, and so I, I think that's 
been a, probably the, one of the most rewarding things for me is that as much as I love to give back and share, uh, that mentorship process isn't easy. And so there's been a lot of growth in myself and a lot of things I've learned about myself through that process. Hmm. I know you mentioned in the um, stuff that you wrote to me that, um, you know, your perception of how younger practitioners have so much access to so much information now, YouTube, et cetera, and how for yourself, and I relate to that as well, the growth and development process was much more haphazard, finding, having to look under whatever tree or bush or whatever for these information. What do you think is the strength and the weakness of, of the way younger people are learning now uh, is? Mm, that's, it's, uh, it's a, a topic I'm super animate about. I think, I think that in today's, uh, when I meet young uh, strength and conditioning coaches, young professionals in, in this industry, they're just way more knowledgeable than I was when I was their age. Uh, so their access to knowledge um, and information is through the roof and their capacity to handle uh, large amounts of information and accumulate it quickly is just beyond anything I, I could have ever imagined. Uh, it takes me a really, really long time uh, to learn things. Uh, you know, I, I love asking questions about, you know, I love kind of thinking through things logically, pragmatically playing devil's advocate a little bit. That's the way I learn. And, um, you know, I think that that process to me, I, I love when I'm teaching a young athlete, if I tell them, look, I think this is the joint angle that works best for this exercise. And, and they essentially just memorize that and then use that as what they're doing. You know, that that's a lesser uh, version of if compared to if they were to ask questions as to why I like it that way. And, mm -hmm. and then try to look at it from a few different angles. Like, well, why do you like that te technique? Why don't you like this technique? What if it was this situation? What if it was that situation? And to take the time to truly understand something at an intimate level before you, it, it, before you accept it as, mm -hmm. as an idea, you know, that you're going to utilize, I think really serves you well as a young strength and conditioning coach. Um, because then when you're uh, implementing it, not only can you explain it to the people you're implementing it with, but you can also make modifications to it based on what you're seeing and what the situation calls for. So, um, so I've, I'm a big fan of really slow, tedious processes of learning concepts um, with a lot of detail. And I think, I think the challenge sometimes with younger generations is that's, that's not how they've learned in their environment because they have access to so much more information. And so, so I've always tried to encourage people to take a look at learning less concepts, but learning those concepts really well, as opposed to learning a vast amount of concepts at a surface level. And so, so I found there to be like a real contrast with that. And I think it's something I've challenged myself to try and better understand is that, you know, there, I, I went through things in a different way that most people have gone through them now. And so to try and meet people where they're at and, and maybe make what I'm doing simpler and less complicated so that people can understand it is, has been one of the things I've been working on lately. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's a, uh, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. I think it's a, like you said, it's the opportunity to be able to digest as much information as they have access to now is just uh, incredible to me. Like all the things that it took me 20 years to learn there, there, they have access to in, the, in, in a couple of Google searches almost, <laughs> but, uh, but I think it takes away personally, I think it takes away from the humanistic side of what we do to a degree. I think they get lost in the methodology and the madness of all the, the bells and whistles and sometimes lost in the fact that really this is about a human connection point and how you uh, interact with somebody and make, make them a better 
uh, athlete through the process of what you do versus the actual technical stuff that you do with them, which I think is very important as well, but so true. sometimes gets lost in there. Yeah. That's um, a great, great point. Well, it's been beautiful talking to you. I have one more question for you as you okay. um, look forward. Well, we don't look forward to passing from this earth, but you will do it yeah. one day. One day. What would you like people to remember you uh, for? Um, I, I think just um, the biggest thing is, is for me is, uh, you know, somebody who, uh, who was kind and, uh, and helpful, you know, that, that really is what it boils down to. I think, I think that in my work with, with athletes, uh, probably, probably, you know, it's one thing to create services and to provide expertise, but it's another thing, uh, to sort of support the athlete on a deeper level and, and to, to be helpful for them in, in many different ways. And so I, I always believe that, um, every athlete that hires me, um, I really want to make an impact. And sometimes that, that adds a lot of stress to my plate because I feel like I have to, in order to make an impact, it's not easy, but the impact to me is defined by their overall experience with me personally, not just with the, the actual work. And so I think just being kind and helpful is part of growing up where I grew up. It's, it's part of the culture. And I've tried to find a way of making this career, you know, happen in, in a way that's really consistent with those values. Awesome. Well, you've been kind and helpful today, sir. Thanks very <laughs> much for taking the time. Really Thanks appreciate sitting me. down with you, Andy, for, for an hour. And uh, I appreciate you taking some time out of your Sunday and out of Mother's Day weekend to chat with me. Scotty, thanks so much. Uh, amazing, amazing work. Uh, super eye-opening questions. And uh, I, I definitely feel like a more enlightened person for having done this interview. So well, I hope so. that's buddy. awesome. Thanks very much. Great. Be good, buddy.